Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and it's a pleasure for me to welcome back Tim Cockrell to the chair as our guest for this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. And to that end, we also want to welcome you to join us again. Today, we're going to be discussing our sermon passage from this past weekend here at Grace Baptist Church. That's in Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 30. So, Tim, thanks for joining us again today, and welcome back. Thanks, Bart. It's been a great few weeks as our family gets settled in. It's been busy, but blessed, and we felt very thankful for everyone's warm welcome. Well, for those of you who are perhaps joining us for the first time or just picking us up off the web, uh, Tim is our new senior pastor here at Grace Baptist Church, comes to us from about nine or ten years, about nine years mm-hmm. out in uh, Massachusetts, in uh, Princeton, Massachusetts, and uh, so we're real glad to have him with us today. But Tim, uh, as I said, we're here in Matthew chapter 19, verses 30 through 30. And and our our passage this week is prefaced by a discussion back in chapter 19 of marriage and singleness. Talk some about divorce as well. That's what the Pharisees come to Jesus with. Mm -hmm. But you know, he really emphasizes marriage and and singleness as well. And it begins with that, an emphasis here in in chapter 19, verse 13, of children. Mm-hmm. He goes to children. And we began our services, as you recall vividly, I know, on Sunday with a parent-child dedication ceremony. And I, I see Elise, Eden, Jackson, Judah, and Titus. Mm-hmm. Uh, parents brought them to dedicate them to the Lord. And uh, the parents and congregation both vowed to do their respective parts to raise those children and to fear and admonition of the Lord comment that you made as you first started in your sermon, uh, you encouraged the church, and I'm quoting here, so be mm-hmm. careful what you say, I'll pick <laughs> it up. To ha- You encouraged us to have a church culture that views children not as the church of the future, but as the church of now. What are some practical ways that we can do that as a church here at Grace, or any church for that matter? Right. Well, and that statement really reflects the value that Jesus has demonstrated in children. You know, the disciples kind of wanted to marginalize them, push them to the side and say, hey, we we want the more important people to come forward. And so I think it begins just by having that value of our children, not viewing them as second-class citizens or or as people that eventually are going to have importance in our church, but that those are our children that have been given not just to those families, but to our church, to teach and to train, to love and, and even to discipline. You know, obviously that's the, the primary responsibility of the parents. And so I think one of the ways that we do that is by not building silos but by building bridges. You know, we've got Mm -hmm. some amazing children's programs. We've got great youth programs and and lots of different activities that are going on. But what we don't want to do is say, okay, children, when we start service, you go over here to this area and youth, you go over here to this area. And then the adults are going to do the real worship over here. And so I think we can do that in a variety of ways. We can engage them in service. You know, on Sunday, we had a, a little baby that was with us who was crying I think Jesus experienced exactly that when he was teaching, and that's a beautiful thing. And so the more we view our children not as inconveniences or annoyances, but as an integral part of our church family, I think that helps us to build those bridges to recognize their importance. And may I interrupt, uh, Ryan and Brianna, you make sure you bring Elise back in. She's always welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And they were were awesome with that. Love to hear it. 
Um, I think another way we can do, uh, can really value our children is by not talking down to them. You know, sometimes we imagine that all they can really understand are, are very simple Bible stories or, or, or very simple truths. But many times when we invite our children to come into church, and I, I think Barb Hunt and the children's ministry team do a great job of this, you know, having them take notes, having them tell what they learn. My second grader, Ellie, was taking notes on Sunday and she wanted to share with me what she had heard. And, and there were certain parts of the story or certain little quotes that she picked up that you just never know how God's going to use that. And so even as we're teaching them and training them, really calling them to to dig even deeper into truth and not just viewing them as if you know they, they can't understand those things. Good. And uh, Tim, when, even as I asked that question, I, I hadn't thought of this before, but even as I'm asking that question, I'm thinking of a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we read that and we know that uh, for just as the body is one and has many parts and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. We're all baptized by one spirit into one body there's a word all Mm -hmm. it's not just the 18 and older it's not just the 21 and older it's not the 40 and older those who are maybe you know seen as leaders or whatever it's all of us Mm -hmm. including the children so we what you're promoting here is really implementing them into the the worship culture and the the service of god where There are those who say, well, we need to get them up on the platform, and we need to do this. Talk a little bit about that, about raising children up in in service. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are some who maybe are accomplished musicians at a 12 years old or 15 years old. Should they be leading? Those kind of things. Sure, yeah. Well, I think it certainly is appropriate to look for age-appropriate ways to get them plugged into the service. But to me, it's not as much a matter of the end goal of we want them serving in this upfront kind of way, but rather the end goal is, I believe, intergenerational discipleship, mm. you know? And so if, let's say we we had ushers, you know, we don't right now passing plates, but if we had ushers, how great would it be if, if my 13-year-old has an opportunity to usher alongside of somebody who's 65 years old, you know? Even if it's just in casual interactions, being able to serve and, and be viewed as a valued part of things um, in the same way serving alongside of, of other adults and then having people in your homes too, you know, having our children serve the people that we're inviting into our home by cleaning the house, by sitting at the table and engaging in conversation rather than retreating to their room or going to watch a movie. So while I think there's appropriateness in having those upfront opportunities in a church our size, there are probably many people who have gifts that don't get those upfront opportunities. But the more we can encourage those intergenerational opportunities, that's actually where I think the real life transformation happens. Bridges, not silos. I like that. Yep. Great. Well, thank you. Great, great uh, comments. And Tim, your, your first point as you moved into verses 16 through 30 was that we often employ, and you called them moral performance, or called it moral performance, mm-hmm. as a substitute savior. You pointed out that the rich young man who's at the center of this story is grossly overestimating his ability to please God and grossly underestimating the distance between him and God Mm -hmm. that his sin, of course, has caused. This is also true for the true Christian. He was probably likely not a believer at that Mm -hmm. point, not a true believer, saved believer. But... uh, don't, isn't that also true for the, the true Christian? Don't we who have trusted Christ also have to fight those same tendencies to rely on 
our false saviors, substitute saviors. Absolutely. And, and I think our hearts, and we, we mentioned this even on Sunday, all have that tendency to focus on the do. You know, because when we look at, at world religions and even when we look at our own kind of self-sufficient heart, we want to meet God halfway. You know, we want to have a part that we played to earn our salvation or deserve our acceptance before God. And so many times I think we as Christians, there's a danger of focusing more on law than gospel. You know, that we want to have moral performance, we want to have obedience, but because of that, we can lose sight of the fact that actually it's all depending on Jesus. And any good thing that we do is the overflow of our relationship with him, not the basis of it. And I'm reminded of Galatians chapter 3, where Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and they've fallen into false teaching. And he says, has some pretty strong words, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he essentially says, did you really think that you would start the race by grace, but then finish it in your own effort? And my goodness, I see that in myself. I see that in pastoral counseling from time to time where where we think, oh, if I just do more things, if I just kind of have moral performance, then that is the essence of the Christian life. And I, I think of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 where he depicts that kind of final judgment moment where many people are brought before him. Certain people, they reach immediately for what they've done. You know, didn't we cast out demons in your name and serve others in your name? And ultimately, they're told, depart from me, I never knew you. And man, that should be a sobering warning for every one of us, that if we're just focused on our moral performance, there's a real deceitfulness that can set in there that blinds us to our real need. Well, I was, I'm thinking, as you say, that it's very easy you probably don't have this problem, but I can fall into this problem where I see somebody else struggling. Mm. How can they do that? Mm. And boy, I'm glad I'm not. And I fall into the same thing as the as the guy who said, you know, thank thank you, Lord, for not not making me like him and not right. making me whatever. We fall into that, but we when we're doing that, what are we doing? We're forgetting where we have come from, and mm-hmm. we're forgetting how close we are to being right back there. Absolutely. And, and sometimes I'll say that we struggle with gospel amnesia, yeah, we do. you know, where we lose sight of how desperately dependent we are on the gospel. And, you know, sometimes I'll talk to Christians who really are struggling in their faith because they feel like the more and more they're trying to honor God, the more guilty they feel rather than the more they feel like they're progressing in their faith. And to those people, I would encourage them to say, I believe the more we draw near to God in his holiness, the more we genuinely understand how holy he is and how sinful we are. And so that sense of our guilt before him is not a sign of immaturity necessarily, Mm -hmm. but often a sign of maturity and an invitation to renewed dependence on him. And so if there's somebody that's listening that kind of feels like, man, I'm, I'm trying to break free, I'm struggling with all I can, but I just feel so weighed down by my sin, as strange as it might be, that's exactly where God wants you. Because he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and it's in me that you'll find your rest. Oh, and isn't that part and parcel, or at least a large part, to the communion service that we celebrate regularly here at Grace? And that is a reminder of what Christ had to go through. He gave mm-hmm. his body. He gave his blood. He broke, his body was broken. His blood was shed. Why? For us. Right. Because it was necessary to go to that length. It, you had a list of five 
false saviors or mm-hmm. false uh, you know, moral performance areas. Uh, not necessarily moral performance areas, but areas that we strive for to gain, achieve, to achieve, mm-hmm. to be good enough. Approval. You mentioned success and achievement. You mentioned romantic love, comfort or pleasure, and power or control. As, as the five that you identified, uh, boy, I'm glad that you listed those because you didn't list all of mine. Thank you. Thank you for not doing not that. Not a comprehensive no, list. <laughs> certainly not. But anything that takes that place mm-hmm. is what you're pointing out. Uh, I, I'm thinking of First Corinthians chapter 3. I was thinking about that last night as I was preparing for this. Jesus talks about building on the true foundation of Christ. Mm-hmm. You can use all kinds of materials, gold, silver, uh, precious stones, precious gems, and then wood, hay, stubble. It's all going to be found out, though, at the end, if you're relying on that approval, if you're relying on that success, that mm-hmm. romantic love. Um, that probably going to be burning. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and I think that's the warning that Jesus is giving the rich young ruler, specifically related to his money, mm-hmm. but then more broadly to every one of us. Our heart is an idol factory. We're constantly producing things that we we love and trust instead of God. And the most loving thing that God can do for us is to uproot those idols. But that's painful, and that's hard. And many times when, when circumstances come that threaten those things that we've come to depend on, we want to cling to them all the harder. When in reality, what God is doing there is not punishing us, but seeking to set us free from those right. those empty things that will never satisfy so that we can discover in him what ultimately will satisfy. And always will satisfy, certainly. Well, well let's talk a little bit. we uh, move on near the end of this passage, uh, rewards in heaven. Mm. And Jesus, uh, it's interesting to me. Uh, I'll be honest. When I hear Peter saying, hey, Lord, we've left all for you, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, okay, there goes Peter again. You referenced <laughs> this when, in your sermon. And I'm waiting for a rebuke. It doesn't come. And Jesus actually follows Peter's line of thought there and just goes on with it. He tells him that there will, in fact, be rewards in heaven for those who are faithful. Is it appropriate for a Christian to be faithful, anticipating rewards that he will gain because of that faithfulness? I certainly think it is. I mean, Jesus seems to encourage us to. Like you said, you know, you would think if Peter's ambition there was a wrong thing, that Jesus would kind of immediately rebuke him and, and redirect him to think more accurately about it. One of the things I think that, that's interesting that we just didn't have time to unpack uh, in our passage is the parallel in Mark chapter 10, where we see the same story unpacked. Jesus actually says, he who has left father and mother and sister and brother and, and homes and lands will receive a hundredfold in this life. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we imagine, okay, yes, when we die and we go to heaven, then we're going to experience those rewards. But Jesus is actually saying, whatever we give up now, he will fill our hands with something much richer and better. Now, unfortunately, sometimes people actually twist that around as if, you know, he's going to give us huge bank accounts and, and luxurious living. But I think an example would be if I have to leave behind my family because they've rejected me as a result of my Christian faith, in their place, I get a church family, you know, where you don't get a hundred mothers, you get a hundred, 
women perhaps that are investing in your life or a hundred fathers you get a hundred men who are, are there to help be the protector and provider that your father should have been you know a couple of weeks ago i talked about my wife and, and her dad leaving when she was young and that was exactly her experience that um in spite of the fact that he had abandoned their family god hadn't and so the church really rallied around them and, and was a blessing and so i think we want to calibrate our expectations related to these rewards but that they're not ultimately for the serving of self, but for the honoring of God. And so he surrounds us with rewards like peace and joy and satisfaction and contentment. Because ironically, the more we grasp for earthly rewards, the more the contentment that we actually long for eludes us. The more we let go of those things and find our reward in Christ, the more we find those things that ultimately our heart's longing for. I want to talk to them about that a little bit more a little bit later on. Hang on there. But uh, I do want to get to this. You mentioned near the end of your presentation that, that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus says there in, uh, in verse 30, uh, he talks about, let me find it here specifically, but many who are first will be last and the first last. And he has a little run-up to that. So how should that realization affect everything that Tim, everything that Bart, or any follower of Jesus Christ does today? The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Well, I think the first thing it should do is make us suspicious of whatever feels right to us, right? <laughs> yes, because Jesus, throughout this passage, has been saying, when someone sins against you, you have to forgive them. When marriage is hard, you stay committed to it. He says, let these weak little children come to me and let this powerful, prosperous person go away empty because he refused to, refuses to relinquish what he's clinging to. And he's going to keep on doing this later on in chapter 20. And so I think we just have to recognize that so much of our worldview, so much of our paradigm of what is right and good is not actually shaped by God's word but shaped by our own desires, our culture, their definition of greatness or or their view of marriage or whatever it might be. And so the first thing it ought to do is make us suspicious of just because it feels right to us doesn't mean that it is right. I think the second thing that I would point us to is that the clearest articulation of this upside down kingdom, I think, is found in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus gives the Beatitudes. Right. And I thought Jeremy Kimball did a great job when he preached on this back in the fall that really just shows us that you know the world thinks that you're blessed when you're successful. God says you're blessed when you're broken. The world thinks you're, you're blessed when you're grabbing for power. God says you're blessed when you're serving others with the opportunities that you have. And so when we begin to think about God's kingdom in that way, there's a reversal of expectation because we're humbling ourselves. We're serving the Lord when our natural tendency is to serve ourselves. And so when we begin to think that way, it should shift our paradigm about virtually every area of our life. And you would agree, I'm sure, that that can enter into our lives, uh, even using our spiritual gifts that God has given us. We have a, you know, you have them, I have them. Every believer has is gifted spiritually to do something to benefit the church of God, the body of Christ. We can use those errantly mm-hmm. and, and take a certain amount of pride in the fact that we're doing it so well. Right. Or doing it pretty well. Right. Well, and I just, I think about what Paul says in Philippians chapter three, where he has every reason to boast from an earthly perspective. You know, he was of the highest Jewish pedigree. He had been trained in the best schools. But he says, I consider all of that worthless garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. So what does he do? He says, I'm forgetting everything that's behind. and I am pressing forward for one thing, and that is to serve 
Christ. And so I think we always just have to be on guard against that because it's so easy to let that kind of self-satisfied, smug superiority creep into our heart when we say, no, it's the little child, it's the broken, it's the blind, it's the hurting who really are coming to Christ in the posture that he wants. Okay, rubber on the road. Someone today listening, and they say, Tim, I'm fighting to be faithful. I really want to be faithful, but I, I continue to fail in my in my work, my, my quest to please God. I continue to rely on something other than God's grace in my life. Give that person some encouragement and perhaps even some advice. How do you keep going? How do you wake up each day and do it right? Right. Well, I mean, my encouragement would begin with the very fact that you are struggling is a sign that the Spirit is working. You know, if we are dealing with a desire to grow and we are engaged in a spiritual battle, that's suggesting that God is doing a work in our heart to uproot those idols. And so even if it feels like a losing battle sometimes, the awareness of the depth of your need is a vital first step to actually trusting Christ mm-hmm. in the way that he calls Good us reminder. to. Secondly, I want to just encourage you, you're not alone. Sometimes I think when we come in on to church on Sunday and we have a smile on our face and we say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm great. How are you? I'm fine. We imagine that everybody's got everything together, you know, that they've somehow, Especially the preacher. Uh, well, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you, that isn't true. We can just put that to, aside right yeah, now. I've talked to Katie. <laughs> uh, but to know that we are all sinners struggling on this side of glory to depend on Christ, to grow in holiness, to honor him in our choices, and we're doing that imperfectly in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships. But God doesn't call us to be perfect. He calls us to be progressing in our relationship with him. So even if it's just in tiny steps, that as we press forward, knowing that we are in a community of broken people who are also in process. Now, sometimes that makes it hard because they irritate us or frustrate us or make us feel guilt and shame where, where they need to be able to give grace. There's, there's real encouragement there. And I guess that would be one other thing that I would say. There's a danger when we are struggling with sin to feel like guilt is the solution. If I just feel badly enough about my sin, then I'll finally once and for all reject it. Guilt doesn't have the power to uproot our idols. If anything, it plucks the dandelion off at the head, and we see five more dandelions grow. Only grace can uproot those idols because it's as we are enthralled with Christ, as we discover that he's the one that satisfies our soul, that then suddenly we have the perspective we need to have on that sin. But if it's just a matter of trying to grit our teeth and bear down and work harder— Ultimately, we're always going to end up feeling frustrated and defeated. And and so I would just encourage the person who's struggling in those ways, lean into Christ, but also lean into community because you're not alone. Let people pray with you. Let them help hold you accountable, not in a guilt-inducing way, but in a gospel-oriented way that says you don't have to live in bondage to that sin anymore. And I am strangely encouraged when I hear of one who I, you know, when, when you have shared, hey, I struggle with this, mm-hmm. or others share, I think of a David or of an Abraham. Yes. I think of an Isaac, a Jacob. I think of a Paul, Romans chapter 7. And these are all ones who God presents them in Scripture, warts and all. 
And uh, the the phrase, his mercies are new every morning, comes Absolutely. back to me and reminds me that uh, someone in my life said, God is a... God is a God of do-overs hmm. every day. Do-over, do-over, and we all have to remember that. Absolutely. Great. Well, uh, Tim, next week, uh, I believe we're moving on to Chapter 20 in Matthew's Gospel. Give us a little foretaste of what we're going to be discussing there and some ideas of how we can be preparing for that time in the Word. Well, it's a really rich chapter, and there's a lot of content there. And so we were even just discussing in our preaching team meeting, you know, where do we put our focus? Because we're not going to be able to plumb the depths of every passage in our time together. One way that I would encourage people that we want to just kind of remind people is we do have a Matthew reading plan that allows you to be reading along with the text that we're going to be teaching. And that isn't just a kind of a repetitive thing so that you're hearing the same thing over and over again. It's more of a reflective thing so that before the service, you're preparing your heart for what you're going to hear. And then after the service, you're reminding your heart. Because let's face it, after Sunday, when we get to Monday, it's easy to focus on our responsibilities and all those things and and kind of lose sight of what God has impressed on our hearts. So that's just one kind of discipline. I encourage you to check out the Matthew reading plan. But, you know, this, this chapter continues Jesus uh, upending our expectations. Uh, you know, the disciples have just been asking about rewards, and he tells this beautiful parable about workers that are hired from very early in the day to those that are hired right before quitting time. And he pays the ones who are hired last first, and he gives them a full day's wage. And not surprisingly, those who are hired first are like, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. You owe me. Uh, exactly. But here I think he's subtly addressing what Peter has already been uh, tipping his hand to, and that is this kind of smug satisfaction, the sense of entitlement. And Jesus is going to be very clear, my kingdom has an economy of grace. And any rewards that are given are because of the generosity of the master, not because of the efforts of the earning of the worker. And I think that's such an important for all of us to remember. Then Jesus goes on to predict his death in, in very clear and vivid detail. And in ways that just make us kind of slap our head, the disciples almost immediately say, let's go back to that thrones idea, Jesus. <laughs> we don't like the, the crosses and, and the death. Oh, we don't you know, like that at all. Can we talk about ruling? Can I sit at your right hand and at your left hand? What Jesus is going to do there in that passage, just as he redefined money and possessions for the rich young ruler from a kingdom perspective, he's going to redefine power and authority from a kingdom perspective. He says, you look at these Gentile rulers and see that they exercise authority over as if they were the Lord, as if they were God, basically. He says, but it's not to be that way among you. And I think that little phrase, not so among you, could be written over so many things that he's been saying to the disciples. You think this, but it's not to be that way among you. And he's going to give his own life as an example of humble, self-sacrificial service. And he's going to call us to do that. And then he closes the chapter with this beautiful little story of these two blind men in Jericho, who, who what they lack in eyesight, they make up for in insight as they cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. In spite of the disciples and the people's attempt just to quiet them down exactly right. and what i love here is that in the spite of the fact that jesus has his face set on the cross the cry for mercy stops him in his tracks and he reaches out to them and he heals them and he calls them to follow him and i think just as he has exalted has raised up the children as an example of faith we conclude this chapter with these two blind men as an example of humble desperate dependent faith that we all ought to have
and a merciful Savior who, who responds. Absolutely. Well, well, Tim, thanks for joining us. Look forward to having you back with us in a couple of weeks and talking through a latter part, I would imagine, of Matthew chapter 20 as well. Thanks, Bart. Well, it's been good to have with us Tim Cockrell as our guest on this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. We've been discussing Tim's recent sermon from Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 30, and you can access Grace Baptist Church sermons and podcast episodes on your favorite podcast app or by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next week as we begin to discuss God's Word in Matthew chapter 20. Until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.